All right, I think we're up and running. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your, uh, your gifts and talents with us today. We really appreciate that. Thank you, families, parents, for coming and sharing your children with us. It's really a blessing. Real blessing. Look at that. Got a lineup on the back wall. It's nice. It's a nice problem, isn't it? It is. So welcome this morning. Uh, you can see, those of you who are visiting with us today, that, that this is actually part three. So you missed the other two. Uh, they might be available online if you wanted to go listen to them. But uh, <clears throat> this is part three. And um, when I thought about this months ago, what shall I do when I get to the end of October and first part of November? I had no idea what was going to be happening in the world. But I think it's important for us to be thinking about these things. Who is the remnant? And, and as we started this series a few weeks back, I was asking that question, what kind of thoughts does this word, remnant, stir up in your mind? In some people's minds, yes, the leftover. In some people's minds, you know what it does? It stirs up this kind of idea of exclusiveness. This idea that obviously there are others who are left out. In some people's minds, that's a bad thing. In some people's minds, it's a good thing. Right? The remnant. The scripture has a lot to say about it. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, we are the people of the book. We want to know what does the scripture say, line upon line, and precept upon precept. Not what do we think about it. Not what does somebody else think about it. Not even what does the pastor think about it. Right? We are a people who say, what does the Scripture say about it? Because that's what God had to say. And what God had to say is what I believe, not just what groupthink might be. Does that make sense? So I encourage you not just to listen to what I'm saying, but to study on your own and to go and look at these things. Because a lot of us, you know, we know these things and we've heard these things and Maybe we've heard them again and again in an evangelistic series or whatever, right? But we've never necessarily really studied them out for ourselves. And I think, really, I feel like the things that we believe should be founded on what we know, not just on what everybody else claims to believe. Do you agree with that? I would really encourage you along that lines. So the last couple of times that we were here, we talked about the remnant. And what we did is as we went through scriptures, we discovered that in a sense, God has always had a remnant. Whether that remnant was a small group of people in light of all the rest of the people in the world, or whether that remnant was a small group of people out of those who professed to be of the same mind. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? God has always had a remnant in that sense. And the remnant has always been those 
Not just who professed to believe, but those who truly believed. In fact, the word remnant throughout the scripture is used basically in three kinds of ways. The first way is this. The remnant refer to the physical descendants of Abraham. The physical descendants of Abraham. The word remnant is used in that way in Scripture. The second way that the word remnant is used is to refer to the faithful descendants of Abraham. So at first, Israel, in that sense, is a remnant out of the world. You see that? The physical descendants of Abraham. But then within Israel, there were those who were faithful believers and there were those who were just Israelites. Believing that they were part of the family simply because of their lineage. Does that make sense? There's the physical descendants of Abraham. There's the faithful descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. The last way that the word remnant is used in Scripture is referring to the eschatological remnant. There's a big word. It ends in logi. And you know that any word that ends in logi means the study of, right? Biology, the study of life, right? So logi, so eschatology. So eschatology is the study of end time events. That's all it means. Big word, small meaning, in a sense. So eschatological, there's an eschatological remnant, a group of people who have the faith of Jesus and what? Keep his commandments at the end of the world. However, the truth is, if you go all the way back to the beginning, way back at the beginning, there were two brothers. What were they? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Isn't that right? And Cain and Abel, in a sense, are a picture of all of the people who would ever live and the very two groups of people who would exist at the end of time. You see that? Abel is representing the people who, by faith, have accepted Jesus Christ and thus, as Hebrews 11 points out, act upon that faith. Cain, in that sense, represents the rest of the world. Now we see Cain bringing an offering. Isn't that right? So in that sense, Cain represents those religious people. You get it? Was Cain religious? Well, he was. He was bringing an offering. But what was he bringing? He wasn't bringing what God had asked him to bring. You see that? He was bringing what he thought might actually appease God the works of his own hands. If you look at all of the religions around the world, what do we see? We see a works-based, Cain-based ideology. Even within our own church, do we not find that? 
So it's easy for us to point our fingers and say, oh, look over there, oh, look over here, oh, look. Sometimes we need to look backwards, right? God's people have always been the Abel's of the world. Religious or non-religious. Eschatologically, in the end, there are only two groups of people. The Abel's and the Cain's. That's it. End of sermon. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's look at this text right here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus tells us concerning the eschatological remnant, but even concerning the remnant from his time on to the very end, he said this, in the end, brother will betray what? I think that that kind of goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, don't you think? Brother would betray brother to death and father his children Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. How many of you are looking forward to that day? Sometimes I think the tribulation is going to be far more than just physical things. I think probably the hardest part of the tribulation is going to be the emotional side of it. Those people that you love, those people that you trust, those people that rising up in opposition to you and to the things that you believe. Having to stand alone while it seems like all the rest of the world has gone crazy around you. I know that's hard to imagine in the atmosphere in which we live. Brother would rise against brother, children against their parents, parents against their children, But then Jesus lays it out in verse 13. He says, you will be hated by whom? By all. And then he says, why? You'll be hated by all for what? My name's sake. You see, because that's what it's always been. Why did Cain rise up against Abel? Jealousy, exactly. And why was he jealous? Because God had accepted Abel's offering. And God accepted Abel's offering because Abel had done what God had asked. It's as simple as that. And thus, this has always been the thing that has always gotten the ire of the world. It doesn't matter whether they profess to be believers or whether they are believers, and maybe sometimes even worse with the second. You see, those who profess to be believer, don't who do not profess to be believers, they are upset because you're just a Christian, and they don't really like Christians. But those who profess to be believers yet aren't really practicing the truth, who are being convicted like Cain that they should practice the truth. Those who are practicing the truth in their midst are like goody-two-shoes. People who just sort of get under your skin because they always want to do what's right. Isn't that true? And sometimes it's the religious people who are more upset 
with the remnant than even the world is. You see it? But it's always centered around that one thing, for my name's sake. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and they persecute you and they say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. And then he says that great is your reward in heaven. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of his day, in Matthew chapter 23, said this, You appear to be what? Righteous to men. That's the disguise of religion, isn't it? We can seemingly comply with the things that religion demands. We can put on the suit and tie. We can say the right words, act in the right way, at least when people who would have such expectations are around us. And seem on the outside to be righteous while inwardly full of dead men's bones. Full of, what's that word up there? hypocrisy, and that hypocrisy is accompanied by what? Iniquity. What is iniquity? I didn't look the word up there, but in other places that word iniquity is actually anomia. I know that for sure because my wife and I were having a discussion about that word in another text last night. Anomia. An A prefix means what? Not. You get it? Nomia. Nomenclature. Law. Greek law. Anomia is not law. That's what iniquity is, isn't it? It's not law. And Jesus said that we're going to be persecuted and that they were out there and they were persecuting, right? So that it came upon them that the righteous blood of Abel, even unto Zechariah the son of Berechiah. Why? Because the religious people said, you know what? I don't like you really nice people who are always doing what you're supposed to. You make me feel bad about myself, so the best way to get rid of you is to get rid of you. Jesus was experiencing this very thing, was he not? In fact, Jesus is the prime example. And Calvary, who was there? The world was there. Isn't that true? In in the form of Rome, and they rose up against him, didn't they? But the reason they rose up against him wasn't the same as the religious leaders rising up against him. Yet both were present at his crucifixion and both, in many ways, rejoicing. 
Jesus says these words. And in verse 37 of the same chapter, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered you as as children together, even as a hen gathers her children, her chicks under her wing, but you, what? Would not. You would not. A few verses later, we read this. Behold, your house is left to you, what? Desolate. What does that mean? Your house is left to you empty. Why was their house empty? Because they were religious on the outside, but they were empty on the inside. But Jesus is talking more about more than he's talking about more than just their spiritual condition. Isn't that true? Mark this word desolate. We're going to see it again in here a little bit. Look at this word, the very next verse there, Matthew chapter 24. You know what Matthew 24 is about, right? What is it about? End time events, isn't that right? As Jesus opens up that chapter, his disciples have brought him. He's left the temple for the very last time, you see. He's walked out of the temple, and he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus has left that temple. He's out there, and he's looking down, and his disciples are saying, Look at this fancy building. Look at the beautiful marble stones. Look at the glistening of the gold that where the building has been, you know, laid over with gold and so forth. Look at it shining in the sun, Jesus. Man, God must be just smiling in heaven about this beautiful structure, this house that we have built for him. Isn't that interesting? And they're showing this to Jesus. Jesus goes out. He departs from the temple. Your house is left to you desolate. His disciples came to him. They show him the temple. And Jesus says, do you see these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be what? Thrown down. You see that text there in Haggai? What it says there, the prophet Haggai. Remember that the children of Israel had spent some time in a place called Babylon? 70 years, right? And they come out of Babylon, and there are a couple guys particularly, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they go and they rebuild this temple. Now right there in Ezra, chapter 3, here's what it says. It says that there were men who were now old, because they'd spent 70 years in Babylon, right? So these men were old, so that means when they were young, they had actually seen the temple that Solomon had built. And now they're seeing the rebuilding of this temple by Haggai, and those old men are looking at that temple being rebuilt from this beautiful structure to this little tiny thing, and they're weeping. They're sad. Yet Haggai, 
who was a contemporary of Isaiah, he said this, the latter temple shall be greater than the former temple. As those old men look and said, this is it? How, how is this latter temple greater than the former? This is crazy. Look at this. We, we've thrown together some burnt stones from, from the one that was torn down. How is this one better than the one that was built? There was something missing from that second temple. Do you know what it was? At the first temple, when Solomon built, at the dedication of that temple, there was this fire that came down out of heaven. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. We had seen that same Shekinah glory of God in the presence of the wilderness tabernacle as God went from place to place, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and the presence of God was there. In the temple of Solomon, when it was dedicated, God's presence came down out of heaven and filled the Holy of Holies. And the people were in awe. In the second temple, when they dedicated it, that presence of God never fell on the temple. There was something that was missing from the temple. Do you know what it is? There may have been a movie about it. Something's missing. The ark. The ark was missing. Yes, raiders of the, yeah. Right? Looking for that ark. Do you know where the ark had gone? Jeremiah, knowing that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and take everything, he took the ark and he secreted it off and they hid it somewhere in a cave. No, that cave is not somewhere through a crack underneath the cross that blood fell down off of Jesus. Silly stuff. But the ark wasn't there when they rebuilt the temple. And the Shekinah glory never fell upon the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was empty. They knew that Haggai had said it was going to be better. So for 400 years, with their rounds of ceremony and their sacrifices and their gathering together and their singing of songs and their praying of prayers and all of this stuff and the, the attempts to keep God's law and writing little books in order to make sure that that happened and everything else, God's presence was never there. In fact, it wasn't just in the temple that he wasn't there. In fact, between Malachi... And Matthew, do you have any idea how many years went by? 400 years. And for 400 years, there's not a single prophet in the land. There's not a single whisper or a word from God. 400 years of silence. 400 years of rounds of ceremonies trying to sing songs and prove God is here in our presence. Some places might do that even today. Get us all emotionally wrapped up in the atmosphere trying to prove that God's here 
instead of His presence really being here in the midst of His people. 400 years. Look what Luke has to say. He says this, For the day will come, Jesus says, that your enemies will rise up a rampart to you and will surround you and will keep you in on every side and they'll tear you down and your children within you and will not leave a stone on a stone. And then he says, why? Because they did not what? Time of their visitation. What does that mean? It means this, that Jesus was there the very presence, the very Shekinah glory of God in flesh. God literally tabernacling in man. That's why that temple was greater. The very presence of God in the flesh, the Word become flesh, was walking in that very temple. And guess what? They didn't recognize him. Or if they did recognize him, they didn't want him. In fact, there would be one stone not left upon another because they did not know the time of their visitation. Wouldn't it be terrible if Jesus were to come again and find his people in the same condition? Not knowing the time of their visitation. Marrying and giving in marriage and right? That would be terrible. They failed to recognize the time of their visitation. Now he said one stone would not be left upon another. In fact, he said enemies. Who's he talking about? You know? He's talking about Rome. And when would Rome destroy the temple? 70 A.D. There's been no temple since 70 A.D. Is that true? Do you realize there's been no sacrifices since 70 A.D.? The Jews do not sacrifice. Why do they not sacrifice? There's no temple. What do they think is going to bring the Messiah back? The sacrifices. Is that true? Why? The Messiah, the sacrifice, has already come and already been sacrificed. Isn't that true? But they don't receive it because they knew not the time of their visitation. So they think in order to be able for the Messiah to come, we're going to have to have sacrifices. In order to have sacrifices, we're going to have to have a, a temple. And that temple isn't going to be just anywhere. It has to be where? On Temple Mount. Do you see the tension? You know who else believes that? Most of Christianity. Where would they get such an idea? You can go on YouTube and pick up just about any web page that's talking about what's going on in Israel right now, and they will tell you that they see it as a prophetic happening. Because physical Israel in their mindset, is still the physical people of God. This is not bigotry. This is not anti-Semitism. 
This is line upon line, precept upon precept. Jesus said these words. In fact, we ended the last time with this scripture. Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders, what? Rejected. This one has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I say to you, says Jesus, the kingdom of God will be what? Taken from you. The kingdom of God shall be what? Taken from you. Who's he talking to? The Jews. Which Jews? The physical descendants of Abraham. The kingdom shall be what? Taken from you. Who's it going to be given to? Let's finish reading that. Given to a nation doing what? Bearing the fruits thereof. Who's it taken from? It's taken from Cain. You see that? Because the fiscal descendants of the Jews, in that sense, are, in that sense, the representatives of Cain. Right? Jesus said, if you were sons of Abraham, then you would accept me. But since you don't, you're of your father. Who? The devil. The kingdom of heaven will be taken from you, but instead it's going to be given to a nation that does what? Bears the fruits. Faith that works was what Abel had. Faith that works is what Noah had. Faith that worked was what Abel had. I mean, excuse me, um, Abraham had. Isn't that what Hebrews 11 says over and over again? By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham went. Now there is a faith that has no works, and there is a works that has no faith. You see that, don't you? The religious leaders of Jesus' day were not faith without works. They were works without faith. They were religious to the T, to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. They tithed, meant in cumin. They did all of the religious things but they did not know the time of their visitation. They did not have the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, the remnant, has always been those who had the faith of Jesus and kept his commandments. Always. Why? To be saved? No, because they were saved. That's why. 
We can't be pointing our fingers towards anyone in the world, religious or not religious, and calling them the remnant or thinking that they are God's special people because God's special people are only those, religious or not, who have the faith of Jesus and keep his commandments. That is the remnant. I'm going to say this out loud. You ready? The remnant is not a denomination. You hear me? It is not a denomination. And being part of a denomination that calls itself the remnant does not make you part of the remnant. The only thing that makes you part of the remnant is that you have the faith of Christ and you keep His commandments. That's it. And that is why there are people who are part of the remnant who are not part of the remnant. You follow me? That was the mistake that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made. They were certain they were the remnant because they were fourth generation Seventh-day Adventists. We got to call it out. It doesn't matter how many generations of Adventists you are. It doesn't matter. God has no grandchildren. Right? Only children. Only children. And these are those who are bearing the fruits thereof. That's who that nation is. That nation isn't Gentiles who believe. That nation is Gentiles and Jews who believe. That nation are those who believe and act as if they believe. Not those who act a certain way and then can profess to believe. Does that make sense? Matthew 18. Look at this. Peter comes to Jesus and he says this. He says, Lord, you ever felt like this? Lord, how often, Mom, Dad, how often does my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? You ever feel like that? You know what you're asking? You're asking, how many times do I have to put up with it before I get to have revenge? <laughs> you felt like that? I felt like that. I had a little brother. He had a big brother. He probably felt like that too. <laughs> right? How many times? Jesus said to him, he says, do I have to forgive seven times, Lord? Seven I know that's a perfect number, so wouldn't that make me righteous if I forgave up to seven times? More righteous than most people. They'll do two, maybe three. I'll, I'll do seven. Wouldn't that make me good? Jesus says, I say unto thee, not up to seven times, but rather up to 70 times seven. Now, guess what? We have a tendency to take Jesus' words right there, and we say, well, that means infinity, because who's going to count that many times? Let's see, 492, oh, you're done. 
You get it? I'd lost count. Now we're even. I'm going to get to you. You get it? Who's going to count that many times? But what's interesting is look at these words, these three Greek words. The one that's 2033 is epta. Epta is the Greek word for seven. The one that's up on the top, eptakis, you see that? Eptakis is seven times. Sometimes it's translated sevenfold, seven times. And then there's this other word, ebdome kontakis, which is 70 and the keys times or 70 fold, right? What's really interesting is if you go back to Genesis, we see this exact, these exact Greek words in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. And it's right here. It says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, says Lamech, then Lamech 77-fold. And it's the same Greek words. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, was he? Jesus would have been speaking Hebrew or its kissing cousin, Aramaic. You get that? So he would have been speaking those words that are actually found there in Genesis chapter 4. In the Hebrew. Or Aramaic, which is the same, in a sense. Okay? Now look at Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. We know that Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, contains the same words. In other words, what I'm saying to you, was Jesus, when he said, I say not seven times, but up to 70 times seven, was he referring back to Genesis and Cain killing his brother? Or was he referring to Daniel? Where in Daniel 9.24, God had said this, 70, what? Sevens. 70 sevens. The, Greek, the, the Hebrew word there is like Sabbath. Seven, right? You see that? 70 sevens are, what's that word? Determined. God is sending them back out of Babylon, back to the country to rebuild the temple, and then God is putting a parameter on them. He says, I am giving you 77s. And in those 77s are how long? 490 years, right? All together, the whole seven, right? 490 years. I'm giving you that time to do this, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, in other words, repent, to bring in everlasting what? Righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to, what's the last one? Anoint the most holy. I'm giving you 70 weeks. This is your time of probation. Let's sum them up. In the 70 weeks, you need to put away sin. You get it? You need to anoint the most holy. 
and you need to bring in everlasting righteousness. How long did they have? 490 years. 490 years. Here's your probationary time. Now we know that God breaks that 490 years or the 70 weeks into three portions. The first one of 70 weeks or 49 years, which is the time it took for them to rebuild the temple. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be. You get it? It took them that long, the 49 years, to rebuild the temple. And then there's that 62 weeks. See that part right there? That 62 weeks is the period from Malachi to Matthew of silence. Who shows up on the scene there in Matthew in the very beginning? I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Who, who shows up on the scene in Matthew at the very beginning? And he has a message. That guy's name. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who's saying that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying that. He's saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember, they asked him, are you that prophet? Are you Elisha? John says, I am not. Jesus says, if you will bear it, I tell you, he is that prophet. 490 years of silence, or 434 years of silence, and suddenly John the Baptist appears on the scene, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They knew not the time of their visitation. One week is left. We know that Daniel goes on, and in the midst of that next week, what happens? Jesus dies. He's crucified. And God gives them another three and a half years in order to repent, but they don't. And instead, they stone Stephen. You get it? Technical, isn't it? But at the end of that 34, in 34 A.D., when they stone Stephen, what happens, brothers and sisters? Probation closes. For Israel as a nation. And the kingdom was taken from them and given to those who would do what? Bear the fruits thereof. Now, here's a question for you. Was that fruit works? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because if the fruit was works, then were they not bearing that fruit? For the most part, anyways? Or was the fruit faith? Or was the fruit a combination of faith and works. Interesting, huh? It's given to the remnant. Did you not read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? The kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to those who will bear the fruit thereof. Peter, who later on would say this, therefore to you who what? Believe Jesus is a what? Is precious. 
but to those who are what? Disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, why? Being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Peter reads a little further, and then I'm going to encourage you to go study something on your own. But you, who's he talking to? Jews only? Gentiles? You are a chosen generation. A what? A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see that last part? Who had not obtained mercy, but now have? It is that very point right there that was the catalyst for Abel to bring the lamb. You see that? having not obtained mercy, but then obtaining mercy, was the catalyst for Noah to build the ark. It was the catalyst for Abraham to leave his family in Babylon of Ur and go off to a place that God would show him. God's people have always responded to the grace and the mercy of God in appreciation and love for him who first loved us and gave himself for us. This is the indicator of the remnant. Those who love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and seek and follow after him. That's who the remnant is. It's not a denomination. It's not a group of people that we get to call ourselves the remnant. Any more than physical Israel could then or even now call themselves collectively the chosen people of God. Yet Daniel and his three friends we're of the remnant. And God has always had a remnant. And if we will be found eschatologically among that last day remnant, it will not be by holding a baptismal certificate into some remnant church. It will be because we are Christ's. And he is ours. I would encourage you, when you have some time, to go read Romans chapter 11. 
it lays it out pretty clear. It says who is part of this remnant, what the remnant is, who's part of it, and who's not, and why. I think you've seen the point as I've laid it out again and again and again. How many of you want to be part of God's end time remnant? Me too. Amen? It's simple. By faith, receive the love of Jesus Christ and His mercy and His grace into your hearts. And thus, you will bear the evidence of a nation bringing forth the fruit thereof. Let's sing a song together as we close.